You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Among the many questions of the Watergate scandal is when you look at the size of Nixon's win in his re-election, why did he even bother? Why did he and his supporters engage in an operation that would eventually bring him down? We'll look at that question at the scandal that has defined all presidential misbehavior and other executive transgressions. But first, do not adjust the vertical, the tint, nor the hue. You click the dial on your Magnavox premium color TV. You must get up from the chair to do this, as it is 1972. Perhaps you rotate the volume knob to your liking. It is election night, and on one of the three networks you get to choose from, ABC, you will see that they have spared no expense with a red, white, and blue set covered with stars. While journalists scramble around with the sound of typewriters and television screens, as dates come in, you are shown a monotone computer screen graphic. But there's little surprise as the earlies come in. Kentucky and Tennessee have gone for President Nixon. J.C. Penney informs you that its 1,700 stores around the nation and its catalog are available for you tomorrow morning, as a probable win for Nixon becomes a Nixon landslide, as the latest computing systems IBM can provide call a 67% popular vote for Nixon. You might wonder, is J.C. Penney going to get its ad money worth? Still anchors Harry Reisner and Howard K. Smith, no Cronkites, but still among the best news anchormen in the business. They try to do their best to keep it interesting for you. White hair, tan suits, broadcaster radio voices with guest interviews to keep you watching. Let's go to Bob Dole, the chairman of the Republican Party. He, Bob Dole, should be celebrating his party's winning the presidential election, but you notice a sour look on Dole's face. As Dole talks about the size of Nixon's victory over the South Dakota Liberals' Senator George McGovern, he salutes Nixon, but says it's unfortunate that the president didn't do more for GOP members running for Congress. Are you disappointed, Senator, they ask. Dole then complains. I'm here in headquarters. I hardly see the word Republican at all. Ah, you may now think. A little controversy now to spice things up on an otherwise boring route on election night. If you had been following the Nixon campaign in 1972, you may have been aware that Nixon Agnew reached out to Democrats that year. They wanted as many of them as possible. Voters are splitting tickets, a Democratic candidate for governor of North Carolina tells Smith. I got Republican votes, and my opponent got Democratic votes. And, as J.C. Penney advertises wonderful polyester fleece bathrobes at just $17.99 in a playful animated ad, the anchors report that Democrats are winning the down-ticket races all over the country. Kentucky Senate, Alabama Senate. And in Delaware, a surprise tonight, they report... 29-year-old Joe Biden is leading his Republican opponent, even though he is too young to enter the Senate. Not a worry, though, they assure you, because he will turn 30 on November 30th. 
the back to the presidential race. The anchors tell you that Nixon is leading in normally Democratic West Virginia, North Dakota, and the South. A clean sweep, Smith says. Democrats had indicated they expected to win West Virginia because of the strong union presence in that state. They also report Democrats winning governorships and are likely to have a net gain of one. Then they cut to an ad for Lincoln Mercury. They offer you an unprecedented 90-day, 4,000-mile service guarantee. Our goal, they say, is no unhappy owners, and we want to prove it to you. Smith and Reisner are then back. The Democrat leads in the New Hampshire Senate race, though Nixon is trouncing the governor there. Cut to Senator John Sparkman of Alabama. 20 years ago, he was the Democrats' VP nominee, and he's never stopped running for and winning his Senate seat in Alabama. This night is no exception. He assures viewers that, despite the election, the Democratic Party in the South will survive. Now, John Connolly, former governor from Texas and Nixon Treasury Secretary, comes on and agrees. His group, Democrats for Nixon, was only formed temporarily, and he assures it ends tonight. The American people are not tied down by party machines, Connolly insists. Mr. McGovern was beyond the political mainstream, and unprecedented members of my party have turned out for the president. The anchors agree. The only question left here is, will Nixon win the largest popular vote ever? J.C. Penny again. A quick, bell-bottom-infused ad. These pants are $13, and their 1,700 stores in their catalog are ready to serve you tomorrow morning. The western states come in. Montana for Nixon. Utah for Nixon. No surprise there. But now, Wisconsin comes in for Nixon. That was one of the states the McGovern people were counting on, Smith tells you. And it's Lincoln Mercury again. Last year, we split a diamond in our Mercury marquee to show you how smooth it was to ride. This car is a gem. Before you can ponder why a car company would split a diamond in a car, ABC goes to Columbus, Ohio, to a hotel suite that's dressed up like a house of the 70s and people wearing skirts, trousers, sweaters, a table with an ashtray, tan drapes, very homey. It's the kind of TV vox populi, a focus group of, quote, average undecided voters that you might expect nowadays. But it was happening here in 72. One man says he was undecided but voted for Nixon. His reasoning may strike you as odd or complex. I wanted to be sure Nixon didn't make a settlement in Vietnam for political reasons. If he did that, I would have voted for McGovern because then there would have been no difference between the candidates. The young man with a bowl haircut, representative undecided voters, says. A young woman does the opposite. I voted for McGovern, she says, because he would eradicate our domestic and international problems. She doesn't seem all that undecided, you may think. Neither does the country. A crude, illustrated map ABC shows most of the states, save D.C. and Massachusetts, colored in yellow for Nixon. That red-blue state stuff would be in the future. Now a familiar face, Leslie Nielsen for Lincoln Mercury. But this is no comedy show. This is no airplane funny movie style comedy. He is a real commercial actor. Lincoln Mercury is committed to no unhappy owners, he assures you. And he announces a P.O. box that you can write to with your complaints. You can't complain about ABC's attempts to keep things interesting in finding some angle to this election night 72. Howard K. Smith notes, The difference in the popular vote is narrowing between Nixon and McGovern, though it is only at a snail's pace. Now, it is Nixon 63%, Mr. McGovern 36% in the popular vote. And this just in, in a historic moment, President Nixon is leading New York City. That's right, Nixon is leading New York City. There are down-ticket races to report, some historic as well. Barbara Jordan of Texas and Andrew Young of Georgia become the first black congresspersons from the South since the 1920s. A commercial break again. To prove how smooth the Ford Torino is, a high-wire act is performed on top of it. A man named Phil performs this high-wire act. Phil is really counting on the Torino suspension. 
the ad assures you. And you can bet he is. But the high wire act on top of the speeding car is successful. Those wheels may be taking a pounding, but Phil is not. And if you made it through that car ad, you'd continue to watch and you'd see the same result. Despite the attempts of these earnest anchormen to keep things groovy, the result was the same. California, Texas, New York, the big states, but also the little ones. Nixon, Nixon, and Nixon. Everything. But Massachusetts, the Kennedy influence there helped by the presence of Sergeant Shriver, brother-in-law on the VP ticket, helped there. Nixon wins 520 electoral votes. McGovern just 17, less than Goldwater got in 1964, and less than any candidate since Alf Landon's eight electoral votes in 1936. It is quite a win for Nixon. But lost in all of this ABC coverage as you're watching may have been a quick interview with the president's number one domestic advisor, John Ehrlichman. David Schumacher is the ABC correspondent who interviews him and, sort of jokingly, approaches him and says, during this night of victory and jubilee, So, whatever happened to Watergate? Ehrlichman responds, Nothing, apparently. And he laughs. So does Schumacher indicating that the election had reflected how Americans had viewed that matter. But Ehrlichman felt he had to say something. They've got a trial of the accused, and that will move forward. Schumacher doesn't press at all. Instead, he moves on to asking Ehrlichman about Bob Dole's comments before about the down-ticket races. With hindsight, that interview is eerie now, considering that Ehrlichman would resign in a matter of months, but in ABC's election coverage, Watergate was no more than having a laugh. It's worthwhile to remind ourselves that Watergate, the break-in, and Watergate, the initial news story, occurred during a presidential campaign. The plumbers had done their work in June of 72. After a first dry run in May that wasn't done well enough, they couldn't hear enough out of the wiretaps. They were caught by Metro Police after an alert security guard named Frank Wills noticed a piece of tape. Washington Post would run several stories over the summer, And in October 72, before the voting would begin, they would publish an expose noting the existence of a secret fund at the White House that funded the burglary operation. But the White House denied the story and attacked the reporters, attacked the Post. Other news organizations, save perhaps the Los Angeles Times, were slower to pick up the Watergate story. Nixon's press secretary, Chuck Colson, told the president that It was simply an inside-the-beltway story. Only 1% of voters cared about Watergate, according to the White House's own polls. The vote in November confirmed it. Not for George McGovern's lack of trying. In a ploy to win back blue-collar voters, McGovern, whose support came from the youth movement of these hippies, ran TV commercials where he would meet with men in hard hats. In the beginning of each of these ads, he would face, of course, the skepticism. But by the end of the ad, in less than 60 seconds, he would convert them to McGovern voters. Ain't that television something? He did ads about the economy, and he did ads about Vietnam, but he also did one of these ads where McGovern talked about, I'm not pleased with this business with the break-in, and he hinted at the White House's mysterious role. The blue-collar hard hats then agreed. Of course, the name Watergate the sprawling apartment and office complex as a name for scandal didn't exist in the public mind yet in 72. It was a modern five-building site in Foggy Bottom that had been built uh, since the mid-1960s. Parts of it were open. 
built amid criticism that it would ruin the D.C. waterfront with its curvy Italian features that would look like Antipasto of the Potomac by the time that McGovern won the nomination. There were many tenets, including the Democratic National Committee, the opposition party to the man in the White House. So, when these burglars were arrested there, it was a Metro Police story at first. But as the story would evolve as Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, two Metro reporters without political connections and no friends in politics who could turn them off the story, as they would hunt down the connection between the Watergate Hotel and Pennsylvania Avenue, as other news organizations would join, the Los Angeles Times, tracking down the shadow man who was across the street from the Watergate in Howard Johnson, listening to the wiretaps as they tracked him down and got his story also prior to the election. Things would start to build, but it was after the election, particularly as the New York Times got involved, other papers and TV units, it became clear that a group of men connected to the president conducted an overall operation he was aware of, but perhaps a specific operation he was not proven to know about, that they broke into the headquarters of Lawrence O'Brien, head of the Democratic National Committee, the day after McGovern got the nomination. They were in a hurry. They taped phones, photocopied documents, and it became clear this was not an isolated event. Various Nixon political agents had been involved in dirty tricks against the Democratic frontrunner, Edmund Muskie, a Maine senator and the VP nominee in 1968. Muskie was neck and neck with Nixon in polls in early 1972. Two former National Security Council officials who broke with the Nixon administration over Vietnam policy, one of them was Anthony Lake, Clinton's friend, they joined Muskie's campaign. And when they did so, Nixon had them wiretapped. They were tapped for a full year after their exit from the White House, giving Nixon some insights into the Muskie operation. In a time when students could occupy the nation's capital, shut down colleges, disrupt party conventions, the line between domestic political opponents and national security risk could be said to have blurred. Nixon had an ambitious plan of wiretapping known as the Houston Plan, but J. Edgar Hoover rejected it. We know that J. Edgar Hoover was involved in some of these operations in his own, so that might have been more of a Washington power ploy than a defense of civil liberties. Nonetheless, Nixon rebuffed, then started building his own organization funded by campaign contributors rather than the federal government. Donald Segretti, a college friend of some Nixon staffers, was paid by Nixon's personal lawyer to disrupt the Democratic primaries. He hired 28 people, and among the known things that were done was stealing stationery from the Muskie campaign, mailing fraudulent letters, which attacked his opponents, Scoop Jackson and George Wallace, in much harsher terms than Muskie ever would have just to kind of stir up some trouble in the Democratic Party and have people attacking each other. Little pranks like false PR sent out stink bombs at campaign events and in headquarters, a naked woman running through a Muskie rally. No one knows how much effect these tricks really had, but Muskie was out of that race by April. The goal was simple, as advisor Pat Buchanan told the president, you want McGovern as your opponent, not Muskie. McGovern was anti-war, isolationist, left, and would scare middle-class voters, according to Buchanan. But here's where more questions are raised. So the Nixon campaign then got what they wanted, right? Muskie wasn't the nominee. It was McGovern. Why not fire these plumbers? Why did the operation continue? Turn off the domestic cover-ups. Bob Hedelman's diary makes clear a president is never free from worry, particularly a president like Nixon. He feared the turnout of new young hippie voters that McGovern might bring out. If we are tied near election day, we could get beat by 5 or 6% because of turnout. Now, it didn't work that way at all, as you would have seen on your TV set, 
There was a 20% margin for Nixon. But at the time, this is what they feared. The Watergate break-in was directed, as the FBI and reporters were put together, as a chain of events that was part of this Operation Disruption. It was a way that they could find out how the establishment Democrats in Washington would react to McGovern, this new nominee with the hippie support. Because that was the race. If McGovern's hippies and the Democratic blue-collars that represented the highest registration in the nation at this time, if those two groups got together in coalition, Republicans would lose the White House. Thus, the two break-ins and the discovery of Mr. Wills that would change presidential history. But it wouldn't change anything in Nixon's re-election. A few months after, no one was talking about that re-election at all. No one was talking about anything else but the Watergate. And Nixon would see the lowest recorded approval ratings of any occupant of the White House. After every member of his own party and the House Judiciary Committee came out for impeachment, he resigned. The likable Jerry Ford took over. But politically, the Watergate scandal kept on going. Republicans were trounced in the 74 midterm elections, despite a recovering economy and improved gas prices, peace in our times. Ford couldn't convert. He lost his attempt for an election in his own right to James Earl Carter. The number one issue, Ford's pardon of Nixon, which ended the legal investigation of the president and left more questions about his role. The scandal passed in many voters' minds from Nixon, who was out of the White House, to Ford, that was in the White House, and voters punished the GOP two years after the scandal was over. We'll talk more about Watergate, but one key from the results of the 76 election, voters don't like it when you give them the powers of office and you abuse it for self-gain. Scandal, if you follow the Watergate precedent, is something that can interrupt other political probabilities, when other things are good even, and cost your party the White House. It gave Democrats the White House in an era that many political observers and historians believe was a Republican era of the presidency, 1968 to 1992. 20 years of the GOP in the White House. That's why it's always the play, sometimes a Hail Mary play, but it's always the play to attempt for the party out of the White House to unearth, sleuth, fabricate, or hope for a Watergate-like scandal. They came like wolves, hungry for power, on the scent of scandals which they could use to sink their opponents, Republicans, and the administration of the beloved Ulysses S. Grant. Ten years from Appomattox, the general, and now president, had his fan base, but the administration he had run came under question. Subordinates of Grant had put in almost any kind of license or fee available from the U.S. government for sale. Post office and naval funds were misappropriated. A State Department officer took $14,000 that was to go to Brazil and ran away, starting an international incident. Another agent in Vienna appropriated funds designed for the U.S.'s participation in international fair in a show of America's offerings. There was an expo with an American Indian wigwam, a pavilion, and an American bar. William Mayer, a politician who had supported Grant, had taken all the funds from that bar, which served American cocktails, flips, juleps, and cobblers. He took the funds as a loan, but never returned them. The scandal made not only the American press, but also the European press, embarrassing the United States around much of the world and embarrassing the Grant administration not only in the country, but the world. The crescendo was the Credit Mobilier scandal, in which the administration and Congress was found taking bribes, and the salary grab scandal, in which the president's salary and the salaries of members of Congress were increased dramatically, but also monies were given retroactively as a, quote, bonus. All this led to public outrage. And for the first time in 18 years, the Democratic Party, the party that had been tagged with supporting Confederates, took over the House of Representatives. 
They voted in War Democrat Samuel Kerr of Indiana as Speaker, but with many former Confederates in the South now able to serve. They sought to consolidate their power and set things up well for the presidential candidate in 1876. Over 50 committees were set up, and they investigated every part of the Grant administration. As a result, misappropriation of funds at the Freedmen's Bureau, at the Navy, and the War Office were discovered. But the largest prize had to be the discovery of the Whiskey Ring, and that President Grant's own secretary, Orville Babbick, was extorting liquor distillers around the nation, netting hundreds of thousands of dollars for a wide network of people. Grant claimed to have no knowledge of this whiskey ring, and whether he did or not is unclear, but he would give a deposition at the White House, completely supporting Babbick in his criminal case. He said he was of the utmost character. Babbick was a former Union general, and he had been by Grant's side at Vicksburg. Babbick resigned from the White House, but was given another job. Grant resented the attacks on Babbick, and according to his Secretary of State, Hamilton Fish, a cabinet member who wanted reforms, Grant exhibited what we might call, nowadays, Nixonian qualities. The President, Fish said, manifested a great deal of excitement and complained that they had taken from his secretaries and they were putting him on trial. If Babbick were found guilty, it would be the greatest instance of trickery there ever was. Indeed, Grant fired a special prosecutor, John B. Henderson, a former senator and administrative critic, and replaced Henderson with a less competent and ill-prepared prosecutor. Because of this, because of Grant's testimony and the weight of that at the time, and the ability of Babbick's lawyers to keep damning evidence from the jury, Babbick was acquitted. And after Babbick's acquittal, Grant promptly told his cabinet that they should fire the prosecuting U.S. attorney, David Dyer, which by July they did along with the Treasury agents who had supported the and supervised the investigation. It was a counter-prosecution, to be sure. Eventually, Grant's Treasury Secretary, Benjamin Bristow, whose department had been in charge of this whole investigation of the Whiskey Ring, stepped down. But it didn't take long for Babbick to be involved in another scandal. In 1876, right in time for the next presidential election, Babbick, who had left the White House and took the position of Supervisor of Public Grounds and Buildings, was involved in allegations of graft and corruption involving contractors. The job sounded so safe, right? He was out of the White House. But this was a time when the District of Columbia was improving itself and expanding, and a lot of the renovations you see in the district now were done during this time. A key critic of all the graft going on with the contractors was D.C. resident Columbus Andrew. As investigators began, as investigators began looking into this corruption, Orville Babbick conceived a very creative plan to get himself out of trouble and frame his enemy. Treasury agents, loyal to Babbick, who had side jobs with these contractors, went into the district attorney's office, opened the safe there, and placed documents with damning evidence in his safe. No problem, though, right? The prosecutor now had the evidence. The the district attorney had the evidence. This is the way it's supposed to happen, and he could serve justice. Except... A few days later, thieves were sent by Babbick, broke into the office, exploded the safe, and took the documents. Then they added another step. They brought some of the explosive uh, residue and the documents to the house of the administration critic. This was great. In one swoop, he had gotten rid of all the evidence against himself and his friends and framed his key accuser, 
But perhaps it was too clever, certainly too clever for the DA. He got suspicious. This all didn't add up. The agents ended up turning state's evidence against Babbick, and he was caught up in yet another scandal. Dubbed the safety lock case in the press, it was yet another scandal for Republicans going into the presidential election. With all of this adding up, when voters went to polls in 1876, the main issue was civil service reform, and most voted for a man who had put that into action in New York State, the governor of that state, Samuel Tilden. Tilden won 184 undisputed electoral votes and a 284,000 margin in the popular vote. And he captured the key prizes in that year, New York, New Jersey, Indiana, Connecticut. Those are the swing states in the 1876 election. It was only the disputed states of Louisiana, Florida, and South Carolina where Reconstruction governments could still send a set of electors, and Democrats had their own set. That is the reason in history books today that you don't see a President Samuel Tilden. But most casting ballots that day voted for Tilden. The Electoral Commission dispute couldn't hide the punishment voters wanted to deliver the Grant administration. Even candidate Rutherford B. Hayes was running a campaign, kind of, against Grant, though he wouldn't say that publicly, promising civil service reform and promising to have no second term. Hayes insisted he was just doing this for the politics of the time, but Grant took it very personally. hundred years later, voters would again publish the incumbent party, and like Hayes, and like Rutherford B. Hayes, Gerald Ford tried his best to distance himself from Nixon's way of doing things. But that pardon, and the party he was part of, cemented a connection in voters' minds, at least enough voters' minds, because it was a close one. Had your zenith been tuned to the 76 election night coverage, you would have watched Barbara Walters and a young, tan-looking Samuel Donaldson up until 3.30 a.m. before Hawaii would put Carter over the top. Carter won New York, Texas, Ohio, Pennsylvania, but he lost the entire West, including California to Ford. It was a close one, but upset with the transgressions of Nixon, enough voters, a 1% margin in the popular vote, wanted fresh-faced Jimmy Carter. So scandal can turn races for the White House, yet the limit of a great scandal to turn the presidential race is seen in the Teapot Dome affair. Amidst the greatest scandal to befall an administration of 50 years, the grant abuses would lead to improvements in civil service. Clever scandalists would still find a way. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. 
it becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? <laughs> I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Teapot Dome is quite simply a theft of American property for private gain, along with bribes of federal officials. With the increasing importance of oil to the nation's military, reserves in Elks Hill and Teapot Dome, Wyoming, named because the rock kind of looked like a teapot, were designated by the Navy for reserves in return for generous campaign contributions to Warren Harding. And oil-friendly Interior Secretary Albert Fall saw that the Navy quietly leased Elks and Teapot Dome to developers Harry Sinclair and Ed Doheny. Fall also got his cut. Doheny would turn out to complicate this scandal because he had donated to Warren Harding about $25,000 in 1920, but he also had given his opponents, James Cox and the Democrats, 75000 of his oil money, making a little bit of a bipartisan scandal. But Doheny's status of a Democrat only increased his need to enter conspiracy with the new winning Republican administration, which he needed to get in good with. Doheny gave 100000 as a bribe to Interior Secretary Fall, a loan, he called it, but it was never to be repaid. It was a trifle, as Sinclair and Doheny stood to make hundreds of millions of dollars from the deal, if indeed they were able to take the oil out of these reserves. President Harding knew about the transfer of the leases, the transfer of the oil, and in a cover letter on top of the transfer, he endorsed Fall's actions. They made a few mistakes, as conspirators often do. In the process of transferring the oil, they cut out a small operator named Stark and didn't pay him his cut. He went to the largest paper in the West, the Denver Post, who promptly began writing story after story about Teapot Dome. And they didn't include any of the other oil companies or oil barons at the time, just Doheny and Sinclair, into this deal. Well, an outraged Wyoming oil magnate found out and got his state's U.S. senator involved, as well as progressive Senator Robert La Follette. Both introduced a Senate investigation to examine the leases. The lead investigator would be Montana Senator Thomas J. Walsh. And throughout 1923 and 1924, the respected senator would get deeper and deeper into this story and get confessions. Reporters loved it. Democrats knew they had an issue to lampast Republicans with. And maybe they could win 1924, despite the improving economy. Except for a few things. Most notably, Harding died on a trip to the West in Alaska. He suffered a stroke in his hotel room in San Francisco, and Coolidge became president. America was in mourning. Prying into the former president's misdeed appeared unseemly. Calvin Coolidge took over, and when people got back to looking into the business of Teapot Dome, he took action. He promptly asked the Justice Department to conduct its own investigation, which cooled the drumbeat for bringing the scandal into his election. The bipartisan nature of the scandal also helped the Republicans. It wasn't present in Watergate or the examples with Grant. It made Teapot Dome a little different, using it as a political issue. 
It was essentially run by the Harding Republicans. They stood to benefit all, but there were Democratic men involved. Ed Doheny, as we said, had donated to the 1920 Cox campaign and his lawyer, William Gibbs McAdoo, frontrunner for the Democratic nomination in 1924, linking both parties into it in a bigger way than they would have liked. Many felt that McAdoo was the best candidate, but after 104 ballots, the Democratic Party went with the non-tar dark horse, John Davis, Wall Street lawyer. LaFollette ran as a progressive. Coolidge ran on prosperity, urged voters to keep Coolidge, and had pins to the effect. Democrats tried to use the issue with their own stick pins for Davis, featuring a teapot and saying, Don't forget Dome. The progressive slogan was fearless and incorruptible. But Coolidge had enough insulation to withstand the attacks from these political pins. Teapot Dome would continue with investigations in the Senate and Justice Department that would go into the late 1920s. But the GOP was also not tainted in the 1928 election four years later, even though the investigations were going on, and they won the White House with the slogan, Who but Hoover? What happened? Isn't a scandal that the president was involved in supposed to sink the party? Well, the death of President Harving may have been decisive here. There was presidential involvement and knowledge with many aspects to Teapot Dome, and he had taken actions to cover up what he had done, squashing the Denver Post stories by simply paying the owners off. Harding needed to earn the support of delegates at the Chicago 1920 convention to go from dark horse to favorite. That meant new oil money, and it meant Harding owed favors. Had he been the candidate, it would have been harder for members of his party to rally around him, but they could easily rally around the innocent Coolidge. Republicans were helped by an improving economy. The economy was in recession under Wilson and going into the early 20s, but by 1923, it was turning the corner from the bad 20s that we don't hear so much about to the good 1920s that everybody sees in the movies and F. Scott Fitzgerald novels and the like. Prosperity helps to make things look better. Depression makes most want to look for villains. And indeed, 50 years after Teapot Dome, the same trend was at work. The scandal was bad, Watergate, but the bad economic times of 1973, gas lines, recessions, didn't help. As the other papers joined Washington Post, Woodward and Bernstein, as they put more reporters on the beat, TV coverage increased too. The FBI was making more headway determining who had paid the plumbers and the White House fund. We know now, after a 29-year secret, that the acting head of the FBI, Mark Felt, had met with reporter Bob Woodward and confirmed the information that he had. They had a few meetings, just as the movie showed, in a garage, made a few phone calls, and then, what hasn't been covered much, all of their contacts ceased. Whether Felt was a hero or just a man with a grudge, after all, he wanted the FBI top job and Nixon would not give it to him. He was about to appoint a loyalist, Patrick Gray. Felt, we would later learn didn't like the disclosure, even as the mysterious deep throat source without a name. He didn't like the movie. He felt mentioning even a dark, mysterious figure was a violation of the deep background that he had agreed with, with Woodward, and that it put Felt's career in peril. He did, though, keep the reporters going, gave them the ultimate confidence that they were on to something. On the television program Sanford and Son, we would find actor Red Fox as Fred Sanford telling his son and co-junkyard proprietor Lamont, there are so many bugs in my bed, I feel like I was sleeping at the Watergate. On All in Family, Archie Bunker would tell his son-in-law, Meathead, to stop talking about Watergate. Meathead would respond, 
Watergate, 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 Watergate. TV references to Watergate would show how in 1973 it went from Beltway story to Main Street outrage. A few main events contributed to this. The most important was the trial of which was supposed to be, as Ehrlichman had predicted on election night, just an easy matter, only involving those defendants. It began on January 11, 1973. One of the defendants, Howard Hunt, former CIA officer, asked for clemency from the White House if he pleaded guilty. Nixon agreed in a conversation with his press secretary, Chuck Colson, to do it. Hunt pleaded guilty. The judge in the case, Judge Serka, was not so sure about all of this. He is an Eisenhower appointee. And he wanted to get to the bottom of what was going on. Sure, Hunt wants to plead guilty, but he asks him, what, what instructions did you get from higher-ups? To my knowledge, none, Hunt says. When the committee to re-elect the president treasurer, Hugh Sloan, testifies, the closest that the trial gets to a real link between the White House and these defendants, Circa is animated, listens to the prosecutor's questions, listens to Sloan's answers, but then kicks the prosecutor out, takes Sloan into his own chambers, and as the judge, questions him directly on any connection with the White House and these defendants. Circa is not able to get anywhere. The trial ends and is over by January 30th. G. Gordon Liddy is called the money man and ringleader and convicted by the jury, as is James McCord, a wiretapper, and the others. Circa gives a statement. He says, the pertinent facts have not been produced before the American jury. This gets noticed by Woodward and Bernstein. This gets noticed by some, but still doesn't bring Watergate to a boil. It did get noticed by the president. His conduct is shocking, he tells Chuck Colson, for a judge. But when sentencing comes, defendant James McCord, a wiretap expert, doesn't seem to get the help he thought he was going to get from the White House. And when he's convicted... He sends a sealed letter to the court that says people have perjured themselves and there was pressure from the White House. Circa releases this letter. And as they say in Dodge City, all hell breaks loose. Woodward and Bernstein are vindicated. The judge is livid. The prosecutor calls for a second grand jury and the U.S. Senate goes to televised hearings. The Senate hearings under North Carolina Senator Sam Irvin would bring the details to America. John Dean confirms that he's talked to Nixon about Watergate 35 times, that he engaged in some actions that were cover-ups. Alexander Butterfield confirms the existence of a secret tape. The hearings show a link to the president. By the end, Nixon's approval goes from 60% to 40%, and his two top aides were forced to resign. The cover-up is worse than the crime. This is the refrain from Watergate. And it's true, especially because Dick Nixon didn't don a suit and break into the Watergate hotel to plant a bug. Nixon most likely didn't know the specifics of the DNC office bugging, though he was aware of the so-called plumbers and their disruptive activities planned for the election year and for the DNC convention in Miami. But it was his attempt to cover up the events that he had knowledge of that sunk him. It was the gravity of an American president exposed in wrongdoing while admitting otherwise. It was the president encouraging perjury from the Oval and through his subordinates while a criminal trial was going on. The cover-up was ugly, and its culmination would lead to the indictment of dozens of Nixon's aides and his resignation from the office in the face of a likely impeachment. The cover-up is worse than the crime, though the crime of breaking into an opposition party's headquarters during an election is not so nice either. That's the criminal side. Politics were finished. The damage for 1976 was probably done with the Senate hearings.
Nixon only did what other presidents did. This is another common post-Watergate refrain. It's some truth here, too. Really, one need only look to the predecessor, Lyndon Johnson, to see some evidence of this. He asked the FBI to wiretap civilians, including Martin Luther King. He threatened IRS audits of political opponents. He had the FBI wiretap opponents at the 1964 Democratic Convention in case there was some trouble. He may have tapped his opponent, Goldwater, his campaign plane. Perhaps he had an agent who got early copies of one of his speeches. Most notably, he is alleged to have bugged Nixon's 1968 campaign plane. Our Democratic friends did a hell of a lot of things, Nixon said, and never got caught. We were amateurish. This should have been done from the outside. Kennedy, Johnson, Franklin Roosevelt all used the Internal Revenue Service to prosecute political opponents. For Kennedy, it was the right-wing groups and steel companies that would not lower prices during a crisis. For Johnson, it was Martin Luther King and anti-war protesters. For Franklin Roosevelt, he used the IRS's power against Andrew Mellon, the Treasury Secretary in the previous administration and really rich guy, and William Randolph Hearst, who became a political opponent after his first few years as president. Truman ordered wiretaps on a Washington lawyer and power broker, Tommy Corcoran. All these represents presidents using covert ops designed for law enforcement and foreign policy and bringing them into the political arena. If only Jimmy Carter had listened to his mom, Miss Lillian Carter had warned him not to overpromise, especially in the wake of Watergate. Candidate Carter had some luck saying to Democratic primary voters, I'll never lie to you. Compared to President Nixon, the former imperial president, this humble Georgia governor seemed like the right idea. But Lillian didn't like it. Don't make a promise you can't possibly deliver, Jimmy, she said. But the line was working, and Carter expanded it. I'll never mislead you. Why not? It was doubtful that Jimmy would get caught creating secret funds, but it wouldn't take long for a scandal to take root. It wasn't Watergate, but it did affect his most personal friend. Bert Lance had helped run Carter's first campaign for Georgia, where he lost, and his second one, where he won. He was Carter's highway commissioner in the state of Georgia, and naturally, when Carter was elected, he was given a post, head of the Office of Management and Budget. But there was a problem. Bert had run First Calhoun Bank of Georgia, a small bank, and he was known for mixing business with his personal finances. What he would do is he would throw his business to banks that would give him a personal loan. A small bank has a lot of transactions and accounts that they can give to a larger bank. He would do that if he got something out of it. One of these banks, New York Bank Manufacturers Hanover, had lent $2.7 million. He used that money to buy stock in First Calhoun and to artificially drive up the price of, of First Calhoun. This was a house of cards. Not illegal, but certainly not good financing. As William Sapphire would say in his article, Carter's Broken Lance, the person in charge of the nation's finances now can't manage his own. Worse, the bank had used a jet to shuttle around Jimmy Carter during the campaign, uh, linking Carter directly to the Lance scandal. It was certainly no Watergate. Carter had the controller of the currency investigate the Lance affair, and that investigation revealed no criminal activity. Lance came out and said it proved no wrongdoing, but actually the comptroller had said the finances were very questionable and unethical. 
Carter came out, acted like an acquittal, and said, I am very proud of you, Bert. A phrase that would come to haunt him. As key senators objected, Bert was forced to resign. When he accepted Lanza's resignation, Carter went from a 57% approval rating to 52%. Not a huge drop, but it defined the direction that his approval rating would go throughout his presidency, never quite recovered from the Lance affair. If friendship had led Carter down the path of scandal, fidelity to anti-communism would bring Ronald Reagan close to a Watergate-like result. A revolution in 1979 brought communism to Nicaragua. Contra rebels sought to overthrow Daniel Ortega's communist government. But in 1982, Congress got wary of getting into another Vietnam and blocked U.S. funds from aiding the Contras. In 1984, they even strengthened this legislation, the Boland Amendment. Reagan, frustrated, tells National Security Council head Robert McFarlane to make sure we allow the Contras to keep body and soul together. At the same time, in Lebanon, the CIA chief William Buckley and six other Americans are kidnapped by extremist Muslim groups connected to Hezbollah. Now, keep in mind here, Reagan followed Carter. He hasn't been re-elected yet. He doesn't want trouble with Iran. He certainly doesn't want hostage problems. That's what sunk Carter. So he gives what McFarland thinks is at least encouragement to go forward with a deal to sell arms to Iran through Israel. That sounds strange today. Why the heck would a... Israel give Iran arms. But keep in mind, this is the 1980s. Iran is at war with Iraq, and that's where the weapons are principally going to be used for. 1,500 missiles are delivered. And that's a, you'll often hear the phrase, you know, arms for hostages. And one thing that's probably forgotten of that, they weren't talking about sending a bunch of Uzis over there. These were missiles. 1,500 missiles were delivered. And a few, but not all of the hostages were released. And now, New hostages were even taken in what George Shultz, who was critical of the policy, called a hostage bazaar. Unbeknownst to Reagan, unbeknownst to McFarlane, unbeknownst to many in the CIA who were begging for some kind of deal to get William Buckley, the CIA chief in Lebanon, back, Buckley was unfortunately killed by the time the deal was even hatched. His death would not be confirmed till 1985, and sadly, a body would not be recovered until 1991. The hostage deal came out in a Lebanese newspaper in 1986 and then became public. Reagan first denied it, but then he had to retract the denial. Wasn't looking good. He had the Attorney General Edwin Meese look into it. Meese found out that these sales occurred, but he also found that there should have been more money. 30 million was due to the government for these sales, but only 12 million came in. Now it's an arms deal and it's an embezzlement. They go to Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, and he admits he diverted the remainder of this money to the Nicaraguan Contras. He misled the administration. He made phony records. He shredded documents. His boss, Admiral Poindexter, knew of it, he says, and the president, he assumed, knew about it, too. The White House takes prompt action, firing North and Poindexter, but now you've got a scandal. So the president reacts. He appoints John Tower, respected former senator, Brent Socroft, an Air Force general at the time, and Edmund Muskie, a Democrat, to investigate the matter. They release a report of the events. They are critical of Reagan, but they blame the associates for doing it. The president, the Tower Commission says, did not understand the nature of who was involved and what was happening. Doesn't look good for him as a president, but avoids some kind of a Watergate thing. 
part of the evidence that helped to acquit Reagan in the press, came from a technology that we take for granted today, but is not so common in 1985. Email. At the high levels of government, well, technology could be a little better. North is writing to Poindexter, and he's told by Poindexter to keep his actions private. North then asks in an email if Chief of Staff Don Regan knows. North suggests that surely the president does know about this deal. He must know why he's thanking people secretly for their support of democracy in Central America. Poindexter writes back quickly. Don Regan knows very little of your operation. The emails hint that this is a conspiracy of a few people. Regan, the chief of staff, was fired. Howard Baker brought in. But not everyone was satisfied with that or with the Tower Commission. Congress, including some Republicans, appointed Special Prosecutor Lawrence Walsh. And the Congress began its own probe. June 1987, culminating in its interview and invite of Colonel Oliver North, the main perpetrator and document shredder. Here is where Iran-Contra becomes very different from Watergate. Instead of congressional hearings being the vehicle for introducing the scandal to the public, the news media had already introduced the scandal. The Tower Commission had been released. The congressional hearings became a public show with some embarrassing moments for the president, certainly, but also made the congressional Democrats look like witch hunters. The problem was there were two investigations going on at once, Walsh's and that of the Congress. This is a problem because if you have people testifying, they have a little difficulty testifying in the two places, where one where they're facing criminal charges. So, with Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, give him immunity, then he's off the hook for the criminal deeds. But refuse immunity, and all you're going to have in your congressional hearing is hours of television where Lieutenant Colonel is saying, I take the fifth, I take the fifth. North was the one that the Congress wanted to get on TV, they felt he was the guilty man. Maybe there were some notes, some hints of John, that he would be the John Dean of this Iran-Contra scandal, and they would get the story out from him, linking him to Reagan. They were so eager, perhaps, that they made some mistakes. Congressional Democrats did not question North in private. They allowed ground rules where North could interrupt any of the congressmen or senators, this is the Joint Commission, but not be interrupted. They gave North use immunity, not total immunity, but immunity for what he said in front of Congress. That meant that the congressmen and senators could not ask North questions that might be used in the criminal trial, really limited to what they could say. North had all the cards. He could engage in kind of hyperbole and storytelling, quick snaps, attacks on his accusers, and he couldn't be interrupted. Some of the things he said, there is a great deception practice in covert operations. I would have offered the Iranians a free trip to Disneyland if we had gotten Americans home for it. I'm not in the habit of questioning superiors. I saluted smartly and charged up the hill. North talked about spending his own money on the Contras. When asked why, he shredded documents. Why? He said. Why did the government give me a shredder if it wasn't to use it? USA Today's headline was, Ole Mania Sweeps USA. 52,804 callers on a special hotline that USA Today paper had set up called to say he was an honest man and should get a medal. Only 1,500 said that he was lying. Flowers and telegrams arrived to the Congress for North from all over the country. 60 million viewers would watch the remainder of the hearings. The presence of a defendant who didn't cover up, brazenly talked about his involvement in what he did, made Iran-Contra a little bit different from the Watergate affair where things had to be pried. The fact that Reagan could convincingly admit that he had no knowledge no Nixon-like takes existed, and there was a different view of Reagan than of Nixon. And the lack of self-gain 
even from the perpetrators of the scandal. What did they get out of it except helping these Contras soften the blow? Bob Woodward, examining Iran-Contra, comparing it to Watergate and other scandals, felt that the president's actions, while a little late, such as the pointing of the Tower Commission, firing Regan, helped insulate him. But despite the success of Colonel North in those hearings and a little bit of counterattack, there was damage done to Reagan politically by Iran-Contra. Reagan was chopped to a 42% approval in 1987, down from 69% earlier that year. After Iran-Contra, his Supreme Court nomination of Robert Bork was defeated. Other events would intervene. His polls would be back up by next year. The economy, gas prices, employment, inflation, not something we think a lot about right now, but the scourge of the 70s was still on the minds of voters in the 1980s, and inflation had vastly improved. It was down to just 5%. His summits and meetings with Gorbachev became more productive. Peace was around the corner, it seemed. His approval rose from 47% January 1988 to 57% in September when voters were choosing between Michael Dukakis and his own VP, George H.W. Bush. Democrats tried to use Iran-Contra, but were unable to get too much new traction. Reagan disclosed what he knew and what he didn't know. While he caught flack for being out of touch with his operations, he didn't lie to investigators or obstruct an investigation. This is not the case with Bill Clinton who, by most accounts, committed perjury on a deposition as he failed to disclose his several sexual liaisons with an intern at the White House, Monica Lewinsky. The scandal that ensued badly damaged his second term. While Reagan maintained personally popular, while his job approval sunk, Clinton's job approval remained high, while his personal approval sunk. Legal issues aside, the stories in the press every day about Clinton and this intern, certainly Clinton was a victim of the 24-hour television cycle and no-hold-bars press, political opposition that John F. Kennedy or Warren Harding may not have been able to withstand. It was a serious issue, especially for those voters who were looked to the White House for a moral bully pulpit. And the most immediate damage was not even known to most Americans, maybe not even today. Clinton had planned to work with House Speaker Newt Gingrich to form a centrist coalition to save Social Security through a combination of steps that would be hard for both parties. Those plans were scrapped with the scandal and the ensuing loss of Clinton's political capital and his need to go the more liberal base of his party for support. Going into the 2000 campaign, Democrats felt they had a liability. Certainly, the Gore campaign failed that they did. Indeed, if you look at that 2000 election, Democrats lost the middle of the country. Missouri, Arkansas, Tennessee, Kentucky, West Virginia, Ohio. These are states that Clinton won in 1992, won again in 1996, and Gore lost all of them. West Virginia provides a stunning example. Gore got less votes than Clinton did in 1996, though 1996 was arguably a three-man race. The same with Arkansas. In Kentucky, Gore got only about 2,000 votes more, again, in a two-man race. This is an anemic showing in the middle of the country for one of the two young Bubbas who had run as centrist in 1992. And you have to place some of that blame on the Clinton scandal affecting Gore's numbers. Not unlike Iran-Contra, the Clinton matter provided a counterattack for Democrats in that Congress sought to impeach Clinton. Democrats won five seats in the 1998 midterm elections. That's a stronger result when considered it's the only second-term midterm in history, where the president won seats. Indeed, the public did not like the impeachment of Clinton 
who have played well the GOP base. Impeachment of a president has only occurred twice. Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton. You can make an argument that it was also applied to Richard Nixon. In fact, it's probably the most successful application. But one thing we tend to forget, and it's very not much not thought of during that whole Clinton impeachment, is that the process of officially dealing with scandals in the Constitution is in two parts, charge and trial. And impeachment is only the first part, the charge. And all of this goes all the way back to the Constitutional Convention. Yes, on the minds of the framers of the convention, how to deal with a situation where we give a person office and there is a scandal. The Virginia Plan, the very first framework for the Constitution, from the get-go realized that Congress should have the power to hear the impeachment of federal officers. John Dickinson and Gunning Bedford of Delaware asked for a strong impeachment, not just for crimes. Hugh Williamson of North Carolina asked for impeachment for negligence or neglect of duty. It appears to be Governor Morris that raised the objection to this. Congress should not have so much power, he argued. The president must be a check on the legislature, and he cannot be if he is in dependence with them. Yet, when the document was finessed and written, George Mason and Elbridge Gerry erred on the side of expanding that impeachment power again of Congress, adding maladministration to crimes or traitorous behavior. James Madison felt that maladministration was vague, so everyone agreed on in this final committee of detail, the committee that wrote the text of the Constitution, that high crimes and misdemeanors would work. They then agreed as well that the Senate would try the president, mostly because they didn't want to turn it over to the Supreme Court. No, Governor Morris objected. The Supreme Court is too small, and they could be warped or corrupted. Since we've got this second body now, the Senate will turn it over to them. A proposal to make the president step down until he was acquitted by the Senate. That would have really changed the Clinton thing a bit and made a Gore president for a few weeks. That failed. Thus, the Constitution distinctly created a bifurcated impeachment, that is, impeachment and then trial, impeachment by the House, trial by the Senate, and two-thirds of the Senate, and also set a very high standard in order to preserve the independent power of the presidential branch. This was tolerable because instead of a six- or seven-year term for the president, delegates had at this point agreed on four years. The thinking was that four-year cycle cut all but the most evil scandals. Thus, the voters are the true punishers. And that seems to be the way that voters take it today. We'll do this, thank you very much. In the cases we looked at, the extreme cases, 1876, 1976, 2000, voters seem to dole out punishment enough. I want to thank you for listening. The website is myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. You can go there to link to the Facebook site if you want to say something. If you do like the program, please tell someone about it. I want to thank you for listening. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.